Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Over the past several months, we've been exploring questions related to the nature of faith, particularly in contrast to the way it's come to be defined in our day. Though many people today argue that faith is belief in the absence of evidence, as we've seen, that's not at all what the Bible means when it uses this word. So on this program, I thought I'd introduce you to a number of scholars who have helped to shape my thinking on these important matters. Over the past few decades, I've had the opportunity to record interviews with authors and thinkers from all over the world. And so for this episode, I decided to weave together a number of these conversations into a single narrative related to the Christian view of faith, how it's grounded in history and the facts of the real world, and why we can have confidence that it's true. So on this program, you'll be hearing from scholars such as John Lennox, Richard Baucom, Peter J. Williams, John Dixon, and D.A. Carson. John Lennox is Professor Emeritus of Mathematics at Oxford University. He's a prolific author who's written on various topics related to Christian apologetics, and one of the things he frequently pushes back against is the way that faith is often mischaracterized in our day, particularly when it's defined as believing things without evidence. It's not the way the word faith is presented in any but the most postmodern dictionaries. Hmm. Uh, faith in English comes from the Latin fides, from which we get fidelity, which carries ideas of trust and reliability and so on. And if someone says, I believe something or I believe someone, the next logical question is to say, what are your grounds for that belief? Because faith is only validated, belief, the same meaning, essentially, are only validated by the grounds on which you hold those beliefs. Now, believing where there's no evidence, that is often called blind faith. It's actually a contradiction in terms, but that's what it is. And atheists often accuse Christians of it. I'm tempted to suspect that they are highly guilty of blind faith because they believe in their atheism even though the evidence for it is not as substantial as some of them would like to think. And it's very important, your last little comment, 
Christianity is evidence-based. We can see very clearly from many things that Jesus himself said, how he understood this. And I think one of the most important is the statement that John makes at the end of his gospel, his biography of Jesus, explaining why he wrote it. And he said many other signs, and signs an interesting word, it's the Greek word semion, from which we get semiotics. That is things that point beyond themselves. Jesus did many other signs, miracles, we often call them. They pointed to his identity. And John says they're not written in this book, but these are written, the ones he has chosen to write, in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. In other words, John's saying, I have collected a number of things Jesus did, and I'm presenting them to you as evidence upon which faith can be validly based. So evidence-based faith is of the essence of Christianity. In fact, the resurrection of Christ, God raising him from the dead, is a supreme piece of evidence. And that's what the early Christians, like Paul, announced to the world. And it was that that got Christianity going. Some atheists say, you know, that we can have no trust in Scripture. But in fact, the New Testament is the best documented book from the ancient world. And at school, I was taught Latin. I read Caesar's Gallic War, but nobody ever told me that the earliest manuscripts for that are dated, so far as I can recall, seven or 800 years after the original events, and no scholar really doubts them. Well, the Bible is rich. The New Testament is rich in the number of documents it has, some of them going back right to early days. And some people say, oh, but the it's been copied out so many times. That is a total misunderstanding. Check what Scripture asserts about things that are checkable and researchable and see, is it accurate? And that has been done in great detail. The people to ask about this are ancient historians, not theologians, right. ancient historians that know about history. So authenticity is something well worth investigating. And there's a very useful book by Peter Williams called Can We Trust the Gospels? Peter J. Williams is the principal of Tyndall House, Cambridge, which is one of the world's leading institutes for biblical research. And soon after he released his book, Can We Trust the Gospels? I interviewed him about many of the subjects he covers in that volume, including the way that faith is frequently misunderstood. So I think words sometimes change their meaning over time. And when Christians have been talking about the Christian faith, it was never the idea that it was just belief without any evidence. And when you look at the narrative of the Bible and you look at the examples that are given of faith, you know, people have all sorts of very rational grounds for trusting. So when God appears to Abraham, he's actually appeared to Abraham. He's done things in Abraham's life which are objective. They're external to Abraham. And it's in that context that he makes promises to him. And I think people nowadays read faith as simply subjective feelings or convictions that you have that don't really have anything external controlling them. 
And so I think it's quite important to explain, no, that's not what Christians are talking about. One text that comes to mind for me is uh, Deuteronomy 18, where the question comes up, how do I believe the future prophet? Is it a real prophet or is it a false prophet? And what God says is, you trust the one who says the thing that comes to pass. In mm-hmm. other words, you don't just believe the prophet said it, I believe it, that settles it. You have to evaluate it based on evidence. Yeah, absolutely. So the the whole idea behind prophecy in the Bible, uh, predictive prophecy, is this is a form of evidence. The whole idea of miracles, yeah. these are a form of evidence. Miracles to Pharaoh are evidence to Pharaoh. Their evidence to Israel. So I think um, it's important for Christians to recognize that appealing to evidence is, is normal. But shouldn't we stop to consider whether it's rational to believe in miracles in the first place? I decided to put this question to John Lennox. As a mathematician, isn't it much more likely that the stories about Jesus ended up being, you know, exaggerated or made up? rather than breaking these natural laws that we know. You know, we, we know that miracles can happen, right? You don't believe miracles are happening all around you, do you? No. But again, there's a profound misunderstanding of the laws of nature here. The laws of nature are descriptions of what normally happens. Now, as a Christian, I believe that God has set regularities into the universe that we recognize And incidentally, you've got to know those laws to recognize a miracle. Right. If you didn't know that dead people remain dead, normally speaking, you wouldn't be slightly phased by a resurrection. And C.S. Lewis, again, really, I think, gives the most helpful analogy of all. If, say, I'm staying in London overnight in a hotel and I put $100 in my drawer, and I do the same the next night, I've got $200 by the laws of arithmetic. If on the third morning I wake up and find only $50, what do I conclude? That the laws of arithmetic have been broken or the laws of England? Well, of course, I conclude that the laws of England have been broken because the laws of arithmetic have not been broken. Right. It's the fact that I know those laws that I realize that a thief has taken $150. Now, this is a very simple illustration, but it's profoundly important because I need to know arithmetic in order to recognize that something has happened. And my mistake was to think that the system of the drawer and the cupboard and so on was a closed system. It turned out not to be. Now, at the level of the universe, It is not a closed system either. It's created by an intelligent God who can feed any event he likes into it. They don't break any laws at all, but it's our knowledge of those laws that enable us to recognize that God has fed a new event in. And a lot of the problem in this area has been created by the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, David Hume, who said miracles are violations of the laws of nature. And in the United States, where you are, I often see on a sidewalk, violators will be told. In other words, this is violations of the law of a state. But the point that I'm making is the laws of nature, not the laws of a state. We're not in legal talk. We're in scientific talk. And the laws are simply descriptions of what normally happens. And if I drop an apple, The law of gravity will say it'll hit the ground, but that doesn't stop you catching it before it hits the ground. So 
of course, I'm very skeptical about many claims to miracle. We have to be. Exactly. But the miracles claimed for the Lord Jesus are very unusual because, as I said earlier, they are set forth to us as signs. They point to something else. And they make sense. They're not arbitrary. They're not magic. They're Jesus demonstrating who he was, walks on waters, Lord of creation, stills a storm, and so on. And eventually, God raises him from the dead and shows that death is not the end. This is a really big deal. But as a scientist, I haven't the slightest embarrassment in confessing publicly that I believe that it actually happened, and it's the foundation stone on which my commitment to Christ rests. There's got to be something to explain why this is spreading like wildfire. So, you know, in, in the book of Acts, it's 3,000, 5,000, then it goes up to myriads, which is a word for 10,000s. And so you get this very rapid expansion. And as they're spreading across a wide geographical area, so all the way from, say, Jerusalem to Rome within 30 or so years. And so, I mean, the, the great case in Acts chapter 19, where you have this riot in Ephesus by the silversmiths, really ties in with what Pliny is saying as he's governor, writing to the emperor, talking about how the temples in his area are deserted. And there's no way either of those writers is depending on the other. Yeah. Um, and yet they seem to give you this picture in Western Turkey of very large numbers of Christians and that affecting the economy. All rooted in the idea that they were singing hymns to Christ as to a god. Yeah, yeah. So that idea of worshipping Jesus seems to be there at the beginning. Back in 2008, I had the opportunity to talk with Cambridge scholar Richard Balkum. Hello, this is Richard Balkum. At the time, he had just released the first edition of his internationally acclaimed book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. What do you do with those who claim that Jesus perhaps never existed at all? The New Testament documents are fabricated out of whole cloth. Yes, I think it's worth saying that they're a very, very small minority of people who say that. You know, most historians who may not be Christians at all and may not have Christian faith in Jesus um, would accept that Jesus existed as one of the kind of basic facts of um, ancient history, really. We can say another thing, which is that it's, it's not as though all our evidence for Jesus comes from Christian sources. We do have some Greco-Roman sources that, that refer to Jesus. The historians Tacitus and Suetonius refer briefly to Jesus. Um, so there is some corroborating evidence. But I think probably it's more impressive simply to look at the rapid growth of the Christian movement the sort of things that uh, everybody agrees were going on in the second century, you know, how did that start? If they were setting out to invent the Gospels out of nothing, why did we come up with these Gospels? Why did we come up against a Jesus who fits so well into the time and place that the Gospels put him? And the evidence for that is mounting all the time because we know more and more about uh, Judaism and other features of early first century society in, in Jewish Palestine, and they do fit. The Gospels are actually full of all kinds of little detail about places and, and people and the religious groups and the controversies, all kinds of stuff about the historical context in which the stories take place. Um, so that's one way of verifying, you know, that the, story, that the Gospels are credible from that 
geographical, historical context that they claim to be about. And that, I think, is actually one of the most important historical methods of confirming testimony. You see, the term testimony, of course, implies that we can't actually verify independently everything the witness says. Um, But what you can do is assess witnesses as either trustworthy or untrustworthy. And if you decide a witness is trustworthy, then you trust them. And this was the case in the ancient world. It's the case in ordinary everyday life when people tell us things, you know. uh, If we have some reason to think they're not a reliable source, we doubt them. But on the whole, we accept what people say, and it works. Uh, It's what happens in a court of law. You know, you assess which witness is is really trustworthy, and then you believe what he says. Um, So testimony asks to be trusted. It's ordinary historical method, actually, you know. The idea that we have to go through every little piece of tradition in the Gospels and verify each one by one, which a lot of Gospel scholarship has been trying to do for the last century, I think that's a non-starter. We don't have the resources to verify each saying of Jesus, you know, one by one, or decide whether they're authentic or not. The way to go about it, I think, is the ordinary historical method of looking for ways in which we can uh, verify the trustworthiness of the source rather than everything the source says. And I, I think this truth to the context, correspondence to the context, and uh, correspondence to the historical context at the time in which the stories are set, um, is a key method which I think gospel scholars have rather neglected because they've been going with that other task, incredibly difficult task of you know trying to sort out sort of thing the Jesus seminar you, when they vote on each saying of Jesus, each story about Jesus. Um, you can't really do that. I think Luke certainly expects Theophilus, the man, his patron, he writes the gospel for, but obviously any other readers of the gospel, he expects them, I think, to value what he's saying because of its historical credibility, because it's based in eyewitness testimony, because it fits with whatever they know about history. So I think the gospels themselves do not demand sheer belief. So I I don't think early Christians would have accepted these as sheer sort of documents dropped from heaven. They would expect them to be rooted in history and, and written and compiled with care by people who are sensitive to whether the traditions are reliable or not. Someone like Richard Borkham was trained as a classicist. That's John Dixon, the Australian historian of Christian origins and host of the Undeceptions podcast. And I think that does make the difference there. He, he's got far more the classical ancient historians approach to the figure of Jesus. And I wholeheartedly endorse (laughs) what Richard Borkham says. He he is one of the most important scholars of the last generation, of this current generation, I should say, really. And the fundamental thing is you set the testimony you have, say, from Luke against the background of everything we know from the time. And so you're looking for that correspondence between the testimony and the background sources that we have. And his point about the sort of internal trustworthiness of someone like Luke is crucial. So historians have to ask a few questions about a document like Luke or you know, like an author like Luke. Uh, one is, is this figure in a position to know the stuff they report? Right. Secondly, do they have the character of a good witness? That is, can you find them out you know, exaggerating and um, bending the truth? Or do they have a flowery kind of approach that makes you really nervous? 
that we're you know not being told the truth. And thirdly, does does what they say fit with the general background? I've mentioned that. And fourthly, can you verify any little details? You know, the date of Pontius Pilate, for example, uh, the title he went by. Can that actually be verified? These are the questions you've got to ask of the text before you do that sort of more minute criteria for the historical Jesus stuff that um, has become very popular. And it seems to me that when you approach the Gospels this way as testimony that you assess against the background and internally, the Gospels look very good. And I think we can rest pretty confident that in the case of Luke, we're in the hands of a really safe reporter of material who was certainly in a position to know this material since we can place him in Jerusalem amidst the eyewitnesses in the late 40s AD. Now, if you are in Jerusalem within 15 years of the events, when there are still plenty of eyewitnesses around, uh, you are certainly in a position to know this material. A few years ago, I saw a documentary on the History Channel here in the States in which the host said, all the stories that we know about Jesus come to us from the Gospels, but these were written by writers with a religious agenda. So then after he said that, he went on to ask, was there any evidence outside the Gospels that confirms that Jesus actually existed? And his conclusion was that there was only one. It was Josephus. But he went on to show that the part where Josephus mentions Jesus was actually a forgery. What do you think about the various steps in that argument? Well, what I can say about the, the way you described that is it, it, it just isn't how a secular historian approaches the figure of Jesus. Uh, you can be sure that historians would be assessing Jesus to the same degree if there was not even a scrap of Josephus or Tacitus or Pliny or anything like that mentioning Jesus, because the Gospels are treated just as first century texts like any other. Um, the fact that they are written by Christians makes zero difference. Bias can mean more than one thing. Uh, bias can mean I'm twisting things because uh, there's a bias in me, or bias can mean I have a real deep concern and interest in this matter. Uh, so, you know, someone could accuse you of something terrible, and what you have a self-interest in defending your innocence. Does that mean that you therefore twist matters? No, that's quite different. So I think the fact that um, Christians had a deep interest in promoting belief in Jesus is a separate proposition from the idea that they actually twisted matters in order to promote that. And so I think we need to look at what they did, examine the Gospels themselves in order to, to see whether there's evidence of that twisting, and I don't think there is. I mean, another example you could give is uh, when people do a doctorate, a PhD, they often have a oral examination at the end. And it would be no use the examiners walking into that examination and say, well, you really have a vested interest in getting a PhD, right. so we're not going to award you it. I mean, that wouldn't be fair at all. I mean, you know, they've done all that work for that, and they have a right to a, a fair chance to give an account of their research, not just to be accused of self-interest. Do we dismiss Josephus because he was a Jew? So he can't write about Jewish history because he's a Jew. Can we not rely on Tacitus because he loved imperial Rome, or at least one tradition of imperial Rome, and despised another? So uh, we can't believe him on anything to do with imperial Rome because he's a biased Roman. It becomes nuts in the end. Historians just say, okay, it's obvious the Christians wanted you to think highly of Jesus. Okay. Fortunately, in our sources, they're so open about that, that you don't have to guess what, the, what their agenda is, unlike other sources. The Gospels come right out and tell you, we think Jesus is fabulous, and I'm writing this so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. 
that's how Luke opens. So that, that's very helpful of him. He's telling us why he's writing. Okay, now we read him as someone who's coming from a perspective, just like every other source is coming from a perspective. But the idea that people who were fans of Jesus completely made up stories is one of those sort of old-fashioned ideas that was you know, current in Rudolf Bultmann's days. Yeah. It's not so common to say that anymore. Um, very few people think, even the, the unique material in Luke, very few people think Luke deliberately put in a fake story. And it just simply isn't true that mainstream secular scholars think Josephus was a forgery. They think several lines in the famous passage has been edited, and you can almost hear it in the opening line, that passage, he says, at this time, there was Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one can call him a man. Okay. It looks like some copyist of Josephus's antiquities has inserted a line correcting that he was merely a man. So it's assessments like this, sort of weighing probabilities that lead virtually all historians today. And I'm pretty sure all of the Josephus experts to think that Josephus really did write about Jesus, a broad account of him as a successful teacher, as a wonder worker who was executed under Pontius Pilate. Furthermore, there's another section where Josephus mentions Jesus in which no one disputes. Indeed. Yeah. Book 20. And he says the one they call Christ. So, um, you know, Ananus, the high priest, rounds up James and some others. And to explain who James is, he says, James, the brother of Jesus, whom they call Christos. Now, clearly, Josephus is not trying to amp anything up. This is just an account of uh, the brutality of Ananus, the high priest, and how James got caught up in this. But it, uh, it certainly corresponds with what we have in the New Testament, that Jesus had a brother called James. What's interesting is that James is being killed at the behest of the, the high priest as a lawbreaker. And again, you just look for what's the simplest explanation of that. And there is this theme you pick up within the New Testament of how early Christians could be perceived as breakers of the law. And so the most natural explanation is really that he is being killed for his Christian belief. That's really striking because you've got you know, someone who's from the very family of Jesus, even if he's a younger brother, the very family of Jesus who's prepared to die for his belief in his older brother. And that's quite a striking thing because in a sense, you've got people who are close at hand to Jesus, knew him personally, as well as people who are thousands of miles away dying for this belief. People can die for ideas, you know, suicide bombers die for ideas. People can die for the idea of the caste system in India, you know, but actually dying for ideas related to claims about your brother. This is quite a striking thing. And, yeah. you know, at, at the least, it shows a sincerity and put together with other evidence, it can be made into a good case for uh, the truth of things. For instance, if Jesus is really famous in the 40s, 50s, 60s of our era, then presumably people have some stories about where he came from, where he was born and so on. And a common thing that people like to say more skeptical scholars is they say, well, look, the stories of Jesus being born in Bethlehem are only in Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke, they say, would be written towards the end of the first century. Therefore, these stories only arose then. And I say, well, hang on, is that really going to explain things? Because then you would have to have people coming up with brand new stories about the birth of a famous person and those being accepted across a wide geographical area by lots of Christians who are paying quite a high price for their belief. I mean, it, it doesn't ring true. So 
I think that's where the figure of James can um, teach us quite a lot. I think that the Gospels themselves are, are the best access we have to Jesus and a very good access to the real Jesus. Um, because I think the Gospels consist of testimony. And I think testimony is a kind of reporting which comes firsthand from people who are with who, people who participated in the events. The ancients thought you could only write history within living memory of the events. And that was because you had to either have been an eyewitness yourself, if you're the historian, or else you have met and interviewed and questioned uh, eyewitnesses of the events. I think John is actually written by an eyewitness. Now, the Gospel actually claims that. Almost at the end of the Gospel, it says, this is the disciple. That's the disciple that who has appeared anonymously in the Gospel and called the disciple Jesus loved. It says, this disciple testifies to these things and has written them. And there have been lots of attempts to get out of the obvious meaning of that sentence. And I don't think they work linguistically. It simply can't mean anything other than this disciple was the author of the gospel. So either that's a pretense or we have here first-hand eyewitness testimony. Almost everything we know about the ancient past comes to us in the form of testimony, ancient writings. And unless you are open to the testimony of others, you can't even take your first step in ancient history or modern history for that matter. But the most important thing is to set our story, the claims of the gospels and so on, against the background of everything we know about the Roman empire, about Jewish history at the very time of Jesus, about economics of the time, uh, literary levels of the time. You try and understand absolutely everything you can about the background of this story. And then you place this story in the foreground and see if it fits. And that is the ultimate method. I mean, there are other methods that historians use. There are all these little, little tests, but they're just sort of on the margins. The fundamental test of history is, does this narrative fit with everything else we know uh, of that particular time and place? Because if it doesn't fit at that broad level, we worry that we're reading something that was written in another time and place to pretend like it fitted in that time and place. But if it really does fit, if the story of Jesus really sounds like a plausible account of someone we know could really have fitted into the first half of the first century in Judea and Galilee, uh, then we have a little more confidence. If you're just making up a story a couple of thousand years ago, you're making up a story and you're referencing all sorts of places, people traveling around, are you able to get that stuff right? And if you're able to get that stuff right, it's a good indication that you actually come from the area you're writing a story about or that you've listened very, very carefully when people have told you about the place. Uh, and there aren't really any other options. And so I think the very fact that we get lots of the geography right is significant. So when just in passing, you are told about the towns around the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus went. You're told traveling towns. You're told where the land goes up and down. He went up there. He went down there. He went down to Capernaum from Cana, you know, up to Jerusalem. He went, you know, or he t Jesus tells a story. A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. All of these ups and downs work with where the land goes up and down. So this is a clear sign that the writers either had come from that land or had paid really close attention to what people from that land had said. Now, that doesn't prove that the stories aren't fiction, but it does disprove the idea that they 
couldn't get accurate information because they were so far away or they didn't pay enough attention. So some people would like the idea that uh, as in the telephone game, everything's just been corrupted. Well, no, the telephone game won't give you that sort of consistent quality of information. They are getting the pre AD 70 information about Jerusalem correct. So, you know, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70. So to get that sort of information uh, correct is significant. That's telling you where they come from and when they're getting their information from. And uh, that puts you close to the time of Jesus. They're at least close enough in principle to get correct information about Jesus. How do the later Gnostic Gospels compare when you begin searching through them, looking for geographical indicators? Well, you know, apocryphal gospels are sometimes called, sometimes called Gnostic gospels, and people debate that yep. term. But, but effectively, they don't get good geographical knowledge. Um, I mean, the Gospel of Thomas is one of the earliest. And when you read it, you have no idea where Jesus is because it's all sayings of Jesus. And you have no idea whether these are sayings that Jesus said in heaven or on earth, yeah. you know, whether it's in, in Rome or Jerusalem or Galilee. You, you just don't know. And so it's really somewhat disembodied. You look at the Gospels and it's very down to earth. This is where he was. He was in a synagogue in Capernaum or whatever it is. So that's a striking thing, just how much geography there is in the Gospels, how grounded it is in the customs of the time and the place. One of the things about the four Gospels compared with the Gnostic Gospels is that the four Gospels do situate Jesus very precisely in history, all kinds of historical detail. Jesus is connected with real history. The Gnostic Gospels are not interested in that at all. Their Jesus is really a purely mythic figure who teaches revelation from the other world. But there's no real connection with history. So in that sense, there's no way of checking them in terms of historical context and so forth. But it also means their Jesus is a very different kind of figure. The Gnostics regard the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, as this bungling evil God, not the true God. And so they really have no time for connection with the story of Israel, unlike our four Gospels, which all make very close connections with the Old Testament story of Israel and see themselves as reporting the culmination of that history of Israel in Jesus. And Jesus is the one who fulfills all the prophecies, all the hopes of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, the Gnostics cut all those connections. Um, their Jesus is this kind of radically different figure who comes out of nowhere. So they would never cite Old Testament scripture as fulfilled by Jesus. All that belongs to this evil material world from which the Gnostic desire is to simply escape it all. You know, we live in a therapeutic culture. We live in a culture that's always asking, you know, how can this improve my life in some way? And Christians have gone, oh, we've got an answer to that. We can answer that. And they find some true things and some half-true things and some completely untrue things in our founding documents and say, here's an answer. And uh, we take our eye off the ball. In Australia, I think um, one of the advantages, uh, if I can call it that, is that we're sort of further down the post-Christian plank than America is. Interesting. And so we have had a lot more public scepticism for longer. I mean, I know, I mean, I've watched what's happened in the US in the last 10 years, last five years in particular, and, you know, it's quite dramatic, you know, the, the speed at which America seems to be um, secularizing. But Australia's sort of been there for 20 years. And so what that means is, I, I think, 
I hope this is not my imagination, but I think Christians are a little bit more attuned, not just to the therapeutic questions, which are universal in Western culture, but to the specifically skeptical questions. When uh, people who aren't Christians look at the Christian faith and they hear us say, oh, yeah, we've got an answer to that therapeutic question and that therapeutic question, they can see, okay, maybe Christianity can be framed as helpful, but is it true? And, And suddenly the skeptic throws us back to, is this a real thing you're talking about? And in the case of Christianity, which is quite unlike, say, Buddhism or Hinduism or even Islam, in the case of Christianity, that takes you straight back to history, to a particular time and place. And we don't believe in a a scripture that sort of fell out of heaven, you know, that is just the divine dictation of things God said in the heavens. Uh, We believe in, you know, actual events that have been reported by a multiplicity of witnesses. So we're, we're once again stuck with history. The Apostle Paul says if Christ is not risen, then there are certain things that follow. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson. Number one, he says the eyewitnesses are liars or dupes. Uh, Number two, he says you're still in your trespasses and sins. Number three, your faith is in vain. That is to say, if you believe something that isn't true, then your faith isn't commendable because you're sincere. Your, your, Your faith is worthless unless the object of that faith is valid. If Christ is not risen from the dead when you believe that he has, he says, you are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, you're building your life on something that isn't true. Your life's a joke. Right. So this isn't an admirable misapprehension, uh, something that is warm and fuzzy and therefore to be admired. It's your own personal choice. It is something on which you're building your life falsely. At the end of the day, in the New Testament, you increase faith not by yelling, believe, 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 but by articulating, defending, and proclaiming the truth. And now, Christian faith is more than believing something that's true. After all, the devil believes that Jesus rose from the dead, but it doesn't do him much good. Right. There's an element of trust that's involved in genuine faith as well, of self-abandonment, casting ourselves upon him. But the minimum requirement for valid faith is that the object of faith be true. In the New Testament, you get the impression that these are pretty straightforward folk who, who saw him, touched him, handled him, ate fish with him, saw him in ones and twos and small groups and a crowd of 500 and over several weeks and, and, and so on, and, and are ready to die for the proposition that, that he's alive again. Folks, be sure to join me again next time on the Humble Skeptic Podcast as I continue to interact with the views of internationally respected authors, historians, and New Testament scholars concerning the origin of Christianity and the authentic nature of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. For more information on this topic, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode. And if you'd like to help support this podcast, you can either upgrade to a paid subscription through Substack, or you could throw a few coins in the tip jar. Thanks so much to all of you who have shared this program with friends and family or who've taken the time to rate or review this podcast. As some of you know, for the first time last week, The Humble Skeptic appeared in Apple's list of the top 100 podcasts in the genre of religion and spirituality. And of course, I couldn't have done that without your help. So please keep sharing episodes and perhaps sometime soon we can make it into the top 50. Thanks so much for joining me and I look forward to being with you again next time as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives.
You know, as you look through the claims made throughout the book of Acts, again and again you find the apostles not only claiming that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead, but also that he fulfilled countless prophecies about the coming Messiah. Do you think that's perhaps a missing component to contemporary apologetics, that not only was he seen alive after his crucifixion by a multitude of eyewitnesses, but also this very thing was seen in advance by the prophets, which just cries out for a divine explanation? I think it does, and it's unique, really, to Christianity, fulfilled prophecy. And we should talk about it, absolutely. We read Isaiah's famous predictions, but made 700 years before Jesus was born. And I think this is largely forgotten by people. And I've written about it in several of my books. 